0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Wednesdays with WIB. My name is Sunanda, and I'll be your host for this episode. To quickly introduce myself, I'm a sophomore at Rutgers Business School, and I'm majoring in finance and bait. I'm also on the podcast management committee this year at WIB. I'm very excited to be talking to Professor Kaplowitz this week, who is here to talk to us all about her journey through the business world. And how she manages many roles from being a mom, professor, executive director at the Center for, Woman, for Women in Business, and running her own consulting firm, Capelwitz Advisory Group. Hi, Professor. How are you?
1: Hi, thanks for having me. Of course.
0: Um, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today. I would love to start off with just a quick intro
1: about yourself. Sure. Um, so... I'm Professor Kaplowitz. Some of you may have had me or currently have me as your professor. I am a finance professor here at Rutgers Business School. I teach undergrads, MBAs, and executive MBAs, corporate finance, and really how to use finance to guide strategic direction of companies. Now, I like to say that I'm just really advanced and had my midlife crisis before all my friends and get to do what I love to do. So I am on my fourth or fifth career at this point, I was an investment banker right out of college. And then I went into the company side and I went back to graduate school and got my MBA and then went back to investment banking because I got scared of all my student loans and I funded my education, um, both undergrad and graduate school. And Then I was CFO of Bed, Bath & Beyond, or sorry, I was treasurer of Bed, Bath & Beyond for a number of years, and then CFO of a bunch of private equity-backed startups. In between, I took a couple years off, which were the hardest, least financially earning years that I had, and stayed home with the kids. Um, And now I am a full-time professor here at Rutgers Business School, and a little under two years ago, founded with Dean Sangeeta Rao, our Center for Women in Business.
0: Thank you so much for that introduction. That was, um, I feel like it was like a whole journey that you took me through, Um, but I just wanted to ask, um, you mentioned a lot of careers, um, you know, from like banking to um, the treasurer role. So was there any role in particular that you really liked um, and why is that?
1: Sure, so I think if, if I look backwards, It sounds, and it even appears like I kind of had it figured out and each step led to the next one. But the reality is that I did not, and and none of us do. Um, It seems to work itself out is my point. So I never could have been a C-level executive. I never could have been treasurer of Bed Bath & Beyond if I didn't have that core financial discipline knowledge and foundation that i got from investment banking um, i never could have been a great mom if i had always wondered what if what if could i have really had that C in my title and i never would have been a good professor if i hadn't had the combination of that investment banking and corporate side experience for over 20 years combined with the patience that I got and I'm still learning to get from raising my own teenage children right now. And so I think if we look back on it, yeah, it seemed to have have kind of flowed and there wasn't one experience in particular. I think it was the culmination of all of them, which ultimately then led me to start our, our Center for Women in Business. So I've been advocating for the advancement of girls and women since I was in college. I was a varsity athlete and found myself part of a landmark Title IX case that went up to the Supreme Court and set a precedent nationwide to add more opportunities for girls and women to play sports in college, trickled down to the high school level, to the rec level. So I am uber passionate about the lessons that you learn on the court, on the field, in the gym, after you hang up those cleats, or in my case, the leotard. And that advocacy is really what prompted me to team up with Dean Rao and start our Center for Women in Business.
0: Right. That is so cool. Like I remember um learning about like Title IX and like think like history class in like high school. So cool that you were like part of a case um that was directly related to that. And um just to add, like even on campus, like I also share like that same passion for women's like empowerment. Um, I actually was a student ambassador for the center in the spring. And yes. um that's how I got to know Professor Kaplowitz. And I'm also involved in a club called She's the First. We like help raise funds for girls education worldwide. So yeah, totally relate with your um, empowerment for women advocacy. You know, I really hope to be in a position where I can do the same in the future. But yeah, thank you so much for sharing that. And my next question was, um, you, I think you, your consulting firm, um, you have had that since 2013. So what made you start that? And because, um, you know, owning your own business is definitely a big step. And were there any particular challenges that you faced as an owner?
1: Sure. So my, my consulting practice um, is fairly small, frankly, because of my own personal capacity issues, right? I'm a full-time professor. I'm a full-time executive director running this center. And, you know, I have boys who don't know how to drive themselves places and they need lots of places to go. So my husband and I are tag teaming all of that. Um, I usually only have one client max at a time because I just don't have the capacity. But what I found was when I left corporate America and entered academia, I had built up all these relationships with former colleagues and managers and, you know, even people that were on my team that then move on to do other things. And, they were reaching out to me proactively saying, hey, can you help us with this? Can you serve as interim CFO? Can you help train our CFO? Um, you know, we need help with our strategy work. And so I said, you know what? I should probably start charging for this. And one of the things we women do not do as good of a job for, about with is, monetizing our worth and realizing the value that we are giving other people and we end up giving it away for free. So I know all of this. And so I decided to take my own advice because I don't implement that knowledge as often as I should and created this firm. So, you know, it's not difficult. I didn't need a lawyer. I created an LLC and I I run, I run some of the consulting stuff through there. Now what's amazing is I love the different layers of benefit from from various acts of whatever. And this in particular, I get to leverage what I'm teaching in the classroom and bring it into the real world company. I get to leverage what I'm doing on the corporate side and bring it back into the classroom. So the executives that I work with benefit, the students that I work with benefit, and it becomes this very holistic, cohesive relationship with everybody.
0: That sounds amazing. I love how you were saying how you could connect it to school and, you know, like your professional life. That sounds like a really full circle. Um, and I guess um, how you were saying, like, you know, as women, like sometimes we don't, you know, take charge and like, you know, are, we're not assertive, but I love that you also spoke to that. Um, and so what's something that you liked about being your own boss? You know, like you've worked in, under like, you know, like you've worked under management and like all your other roles, except for the web part. So how does it feel to be, you know, in charge of your own company?
1: Yeah, so look, it's, it's incredible because you have the flexibility. Uh, I find the flexibility with the consulting. I find the flexibility to an extent with the teaching. I mean, the beauty of being faculty is when we have class, we have to be on campus and in the classroom. And I think we've all realized as students and as faculty that we all generally I'm not gonna say everybody, but most of us do much better and learn and are able to focus a little bit more when we are in person in the classroom, right? And so besides those times when I'm in the classroom, my virtual office at home, my home office, I was using before the pandemic and am super productive there. And so having that flexibility to be able to hear how my kid's day was after school or see them in the morning before they go off is is really rewarding, and even with respect to the center, yes, it is part of Rutgers University, and there are folks that you know we all answer to. But it is entrepreneurial, even within that space, and that really energizes me. And I think it energizes a lot of people when you have the flexibility to to do what you need to do to add value to the overall organization, but are able to do it within the constraints, you know, and of your own time and other commitments as well. I think corporations nationwide are trying to figure that out right now as well.
0: Of course, that makes a lot of uh, sense, especially like with you, like you're um, juggling so many different roles. So yeah, definitely makes sense. Um, This is a kind of interesting question um, that I'm really curious about. So you've successfully pivoted through a lot of different roles in your career. So where do you think, you know, like in the future, like, are you you know, venturing onto anything new, interesting, or are you just continuing your work with like CWIB and as professor? So, anything on that that? that?
1: that that's a great question, and yes, I'm I'm leveraging my my dance training from that I had to learn in gymnastics to pivot all of those all of those times. But like I said, I think each one built upon the other. I'm really grateful and fortunate that I get to do what I love to do every single day. I love developing talented people. Uh, I feel very passionate and inspired to make the next generation of women have an easier time, have more opportunities, have these skills that um, they are fully capable of having and realize what they need to have Um, And changing and removing the biases that exist within the institutional structures to enable those women to have productive and satisfying careers that contribute to the bottom line of those companies. And so if I were to have won the lottery, if I were to win the lottery tomorrow, I would still be doing exactly what I'm doing today. I'm, I'm very grateful and fortunate that I'm able to do what I love.
0: That is so inspirational and like great to hear, Professor. Um, not a lot of people say that. Usually a lot of my professors are like, yeah, guys, if I win the lottery, I'm out of here. So that really means a lot. Um, and I guess you were touching upon like the qualities and skills that you know you, you want to see women have in the future. So um, you know, what are those skills or qualities that you think make like successful women business leaders or even like women in the workplace?
1: Sure. So I think what's interesting is we women have all of these skills already. They're innate in who we are because we're human beings. And if you look at the leaders of the major countries during the COVID-19 pandemic, and you look at the ones who've been able to have their countries continue to move forward, the majority of those that were very successful, especially in the beginning, were all women. And so some of the things that we need to continue to do is we need to lead with empathy. One of the biggest things that, Women struggle with though is the voice inside their own head. And we need to push that out and push that imposter syndrome down and away because the reality is that we deserve to be here. We are just as smart. We are just as educated. We are just as capable and we're just as driven. Therefore, if somebody gives us the opportunity, it is not that we are lucky, it's that we are deserving. And I want us to show up at that table because we deserve to be there. So that's the first thing is getting that confidence and realizing it inside ourselves. That's probably the biggest obstacle that I see women face um, within themselves. And then the second one is to realize that um, in order to be a C-level executive, we need to have line management responsibilities. We need to know finance. Now finance is not calculus. And, And by the way, women excel in math in K through 12 equally to men, or boys excel, girls excel equally to boys in K through 12. So it's not an aptitude issue. I think it's a confidence issue. And the reality is finance is really important. We need to understand what that bottom line is, what profit is, you're a finance major, you understand all of this. Um, but I think that's something that we need to realize um, as well. But it's not just women. It's not what do we need to do to change. It's what are the barriers that need to be removed within the institutions. And a lot of that is the assumptions. There are assumptions just because I'm of a certain age and if I have kids or maybe I don't want to have kids does not mean I'm going to neglect my work. How do you know that I'm not the primary breadwinner? How do you know that I'm not passionate about my career and I want to continue to do it? How do you know that my husband isn't stepping up or my partner is stepping up and doing equally or more at home than I am? Do not make the assumption that I'm going to scale back because all of a sudden I'm of childbearing age and I'm going to have kids. Um, So I think that's really critical as well. Um, And then I think the other thing women need to do and managers need to do on the other side is we need to make sure that we find mentors and sponsors and have folks that are in our corner that are going to advocate for us when we're there and when we're not. And it's up to managers and men and women who came before us to use their voice to grant us those opportunities as well.
0: Right. I really loved how you talked about um, all of that. It was, um, I think, the part where you mentioned um, women already having the qualities in them, but just not having the confidence and how, like, you know, like you, like your role and also like at the center, like just instilling that confidence, I think is like the first step. So I really like that. And um, speaking of the center, we're now gonna switch topics and talk more about your role at the Center for Women in Business, um, which is different from Rutgers Women in Business. This is a club. And the thing that Professor Kapowitz runs is a center. Um, and I would love to hear your thoughts about how you started this role or how you started the center and your role in it.
1: Sure, so, so like I said, I partnered up with Dean Rao. Um, when I came here, I realized there were pockets of programming for women, but there wasn't anything comprehensive and cohesive. So we have RUWIB, the Undergraduate Women in Business Clubs. Um, there are some organizations at the graduate level as well. There's a whole institute of women's leadership at Rutgers University that had centers and institutes from all the different schools and colleges, and the business school wasn't part of it. And to me, that seemed like a really big mess. So we decided to create it. So we went to Dean Lay and said, hey, we have this idea. And she's been very supportive and said, great, go raise some money and get a board together. And because I don't have an appreciation maybe of how slow things are supposed to move in academia, um, somebody tells me I can do something. I'm going to do it. So eight months after we had a cocktail event with 30 alum to float this idea, the university approved the formation of the Center for Women in Business. And so really what we're doing is through education, opportunity and thought leadership, we do three things. We remove barriers, we build community and we empower women with confidence and skills to succeed. And so we, are, uh, we were established as a research center. If you look at the latest issue of the Rutgers Business Review, the entire issue is dedicated to advancing women in business. So Professor Christina Durante and I, took over the issue and curated seven articles from different scholarly academics throughout the country to contribute to that issue. Again, focused on the themes of our center, removing barriers, building community and empowering women. Um, we support and provide assistance to the student clubs like Rutgers, uh, RUWIB, um, like Smart Women Securities. I happen to be the faculty advisor for RUWIB Newark I'm the faculty advisor for Smart Women's Securities, a new club that was just started in New Brunswick. Um, Dean Rao is the faculty advisor for RUWIB in New Brunswick. Um, I'm working with the MBA clubs as well. What we can do is we can help introduce you to other folks. One of the biggest barriers for women is not understand, one, not realizing what these jobs are, two, um, knowing that there are opportunities for them and three, understanding what those jobs are, because they don't see people that look like them in these positions. So the more we can showcase other women who are doing various different jobs that you might not have even considered, the more likely it is you're going to enter those professions and they're more lucrative. Right. It
0: was great hearing about the um, three you know, like actions that the center does. And also I wanted to say, I also joined smart women securities this year. So like really great club learning a lot from it. I'm so really glad that's there. And, um, my next question to you is, um, you said that, you know, like three actions for the center, but I interned or was ambassador last semester, and we learned about the three pillars of the center, which are intersectionality, male allies, and mid-career women. So can you explain more in detail how the center decided on these pillars and why you think these topics are of particular importance in the workplace today?
1: Sure. So, so that's, that's a great question. And When we created the center, one of the things we did was we did market research, just like you learn about in your strategy classes, right? And see where is that empty space that folks aren't playing, both at the academic level and in the professional services level. And what we found were these three areas. So the first is mid-career women. So there's a lot of work that's being done for her when she gets out of college. How can we support her? How can we make sure she enters the workforce? Lots of work being done on how do we get more women into the C-suite. That messy middle when everything in her life is overlapping, mid-career, not necessarily level, but the middle of her career, call it 10 plus years of work experience, um, maybe you know up to 25, 30 years of work experience. She might have kids that she's taking care of. She might have parents that she's taking care of. She might be kind of stuck in her current level and want to move on to something else she might be thinking of you know something that maybe is more she's more passionate about doing she might be trying to figure out how to get promoted so all of that how do we get her to stay in the workforce and again that's where those removing those barriers and all those assumptions and biases exist as well and how can we eliminate some of those because it's not just fixing her that's not going to change the paradigm it's fixing the institution. So that's the first one. And the second one is um, intersectionality. So intersectionality is a term coined years ago by Kimberly Crenshaw, um, really touching on the fact that people have generally more than one way that they identify themselves. And, you know, gender is is one, um, race, ethnicity, ability, age are all other ones. And we wanted to be very intentional when we created the center for it not to be a white women's initiative so you can't see me but i am a white woman and i only know what i know for my own personal experiences right and so i wanted to make sure as we built the center and built the programming and built the content and focused on the research that we were including voices of people that didn't look like me because again, I didn't have those experiences. I can read about them. I can learn about them. I can listen about them, but because they weren't my experiences, I am not the best person to talk to all of those experiences. And so I want to make sure that we created the space for others to have the platform to vo- for their voices to be heard. And then the third one is male allyship. And it's not just men; it could be anybody. Can be an ally, and you can think of ally as an umbrella term for advocate, ambassador, supporter, cheerleader, champion. Sometimes accomplice is used. Um, really, it's those folks that are going to help this underrepresented population succeed. Um, in this case, we're talking about gender—all women, um, it, inclusive of all their other identities—but Since men are the ones really controlling the power structures within business right now, we really felt strongly that men need to not only be part of the conversation, but it is vital that they are part of the solution. And being part of solution doesn't mean I want the guy to save me. You know, we have to rewrite that Cinderella story. I don't need him to find that glass slipper. I do need him to put that glass slipper away in the closet before somebody has to ask him to do it 20 times. But I don't need him to save me from, you know, that tower.
0: I really love that. Like the fact that you said like that you don't need someone to save them because I think a lot of times when people, even like um, the first time I heard like male allies, I misunderstood it to be like, oh, like someone is gonna, you know, like, uh, I don't know, like kind of like stand up for me, like, yes, stand up for me. But I think it comes more like support, not just like, like you said, like saving someone. So yeah, totally agree with that. Um, And you mentioned like mid-career women and when you explained it just you know like it's it seemed overwhelming to me and like 20 years into your career like to have all those things to balance because I think as soon as you come out of college you know you're just on your own like you know you're kind of like a free bird but I guess you can get burdened down with some other responsibilities. So how does the center um, empower mid-career women like what is what are some things that it's doing to really ensure that these women are getting into the c-suite if that's their goal?
1: Sure. So we're doing a couple things right now. And remember, we launched the center basically during a pandemic. And so we created a virtual webinar series. And so every month, we have another topic. And the topics range from, you know, how do you negotiate to how, you know, some of the changing some of the systemic issues. How do we? Um, make sure that we have basic human rights before we can even talk about diversity, equity, and inclusion in the workplace. Um, and so that's great content that, that, by the way, students can take advantage of as well because it doesn't always relate to, you know, you have to have worked for 20 years. Um, and so that's, that's one avenue. And we have about 200 people, a webinar, who, who chime in. Um, secondarily, we um, launched a mid-career group mentoring program called Women Grows. Gaining and Retaining Outstanding Women, and it's eight women from diverse backgrounds, diverse industries, and they're paired up with two executives, and they meet four times, and there are um, curricular components that are discussed every single time, but then it's also the opportunity for each woman to share one of the challenges she's having at work and create that community that we talked about earlier of her peers to help weigh in on, hey, what, what what could I do? Have you dealt with this issue before and how have you handled it? And so that's one thing we're doing. The really amazing part of that program is the mentees and that program become the mentors for you students in our Women Grows program, um, which also is a group mentoring program. And so that's really special that we feel like we can Pay it forward really quickly and make an impact really fast. Um, and we're working on some of the other exciting things that I can't talk about right now because I haven't launched. Um, and then finally, you know, our research and making sure that when we're doing research, we are looking at what interventions companies can do, um, what are some of the commonalities that enable women to stay in the workforce leveraging the employee resource groups at different companies. We created an ERG roundtable um, where we talk about how does that relate to the company's DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion strategy, and how can we make sure that it moves, great to have this support group in this community, but how can it move even beyond that to really impact change within the organization, family leave, paid childcare, all of the things that you're hearing at the federal level companies need to start implementing some of those at their level as well.
0: Right. Um, That is great. And also, um, I was just collecting my thoughts where you were saying how the mentors, like, you know, they become mentees and even like women that are like, have had like careers, like 20 years, like they're getting mentored. So I think it's really important to realize that mentorship is like an ongoing process. And usually, like, I think even sometimes, like, in undergraduate like people are like oh I don't need to be mentored like I'm I already have my internship but I think it's really important to learn from what you said like it's oh it's never too late to be like mentored so I really like that yeah
1: Yeah. I think that's really I think that's really important I still have mentors and actually I, I have um what's great is there was somebody that was my mentee that I didn't even realize it and she actually became my mentor years later um, oh, that's so when cool. I was looking to raise capital. So you never know where folks are gonna be. You always wanna leave each organization on a high note mm-hmm. um, because it's a very small world. We say that all the time, but it really is true. And you're gonna come across these folks again who you've interacted with. So it's always important. And your, your classmates, honestly, are your first network. So that's really important that I tell students all the time is to take advantage of meeting folks working in different study groups with people, not just your best buds, because these are folks that you're going to want to connect with 10 years from now, 20 years from now. And when you're that CEO and you're supposed to know the answer to that question and you don't, that's okay. But then you call your girlfriends to be like, Hey, here's the issue. What do you think? And nobody needs to know that you're doing that, but People do that to me. I do that for other folks and and come back, and we're just stronger and better and more empowered because of all of that. Right.
0: That's really great advice, especially because, you know, like we, me and like a lot of other girls listening to this podcast are in that stage where they're building their network with just their classmates. And so, speaking of advice, um, I wanted to now focus on like advice that you have for girls our age, girls listening to this podcast, or even like anyone listening to this podcast. Um, my first question being what are some challenges that you personally faced, um, in the business world? And maybe like, how would you say like, we maybe like, cause obviously like, I feel like we all need to make some mistakes to learn, but what are some things that maybe you think we can avoid in this day and age?
1: Sure. I think one of the hardest things for me right out of college was expectation management. And, um, you know, I was an investment banker and, I was an investment banker, I'm about to date myself, but we didn't have cell phones. We had a pager and Uber didn't exist. And we had no way of communicating with people outside a landline. And we didn't even call it a landline because it was the only kind of line. And so if I knew I had to work till three in the morning, I was totally fine. But if I thought I was gonna leave at seven and I was going on a date and there was some guy at my doorstep and I didn't get there till 7.15, I was livid because I had no way to tell him. And he just had to hang out. And so for me, managing my own expectations of my time uh, would have served me better because I wouldn't have been as disappointed as I was on some things that were like really minor. If you think about 15 minutes, that's not really a lot of time. Um, and so I think, I think that's important. Um, And then thinking about the long game, right? I worked really, really hard, but I learned a lot. And it really gave me the foundation for what I needed to do going forward. And that isn't the right career, the right choice for everybody. It was the right choice for me. And I think just managing my own expectations inside my head was probably one of the biggest lessons that I learned. And the other thing I think I mentioned before is that voice inside your head, like you deserve to be there. Nobody is hiring you because you're a person of color or because you're a woman. They're not checking off a a token box because the reality is companies still focus on profit and it might not be the only thing they focus on but they're still focusing on it. And they don't have the checkbook. They don't have the funds to hire somebody that isn't an A player. So think about your identity in the sense that it is an and it's not a replacement for the skills that you already possess and that's why they're hiring you. So I think that's the other thing is is that voice inside our head, get that positive one and you know, flick away the negative.
0: Yeah, definitely. I totally relate with that as well because I think even like with recruiting and stuff, um sometimes it's kind of easy to get like to think that, oh, okay, like I'm um, I mean, not like personally, but I think a lot of girls think that they're lesser because they're a girl and like, you know, they don't deserve it as much. I'm in woman Build and it's a program that, you know, helps girls like prepare for, um, you know, like careers in finance and business, I guess. And so one of the main things we talk about is like not feeling less. And so, like you said, you know, we have the skills. It's just feeling equal, you know. So, yeah.
1: Yeah. So I think one of the biggest lessons that that I learned was You know, you're in a meeting always, even in your classroom, right? And everybody's like, hey, what's the answer? What's the answer? And everybody's looking around. And the first time I was CFO, I remember being in this conversation and everybody's looking and everybody's looking. And I was like, oh crap, everyone's looking at me. I'm the (laughs) boss. I'm supposed to know the answer. And it was in that moment I realized, you know what? I don't know the perfect answer. I'm gonna use my best educated guess and make a decision But it was in that moment that I realized even the CEO of a fortune 500 company does not know the right answer every time. And that's okay, because they are just going to make the best decision to move that company forward. And sometimes a wrong decision is even better than indecision, because again, it's forward momentum. And so that just gave me such relief and privilege to realize that, I could act.
0: Right. That very makes great. sense. Yeah. Seems like a very enlightening moment that was happening yeah. for you at the time. Um, and I guess what advice would you have for girls who are trying to figure out their careers? And like a lot of times careers are related to like, so they're like, oh, um, find out like what you like to do. But sometimes it's hard to find out what you like to do if you're not able to do the actual job. So what's your advice for girls who are still trying to figure that out?
1: Sure. I think, that's, I think that's a great question. And I do an exercise in my class towards the end of the semester where I have them make a Venn diagram, right? And, and what do you like and what are you good at? And where that intersection is, is probably where you're going to end up. That's how I ended up in academia. I'm pretty good at making complex topics simple and not intimidating. And I love developing talented people. Okay, great. That's a professor, right? Um, so... You can think about what you like. Do you like talking with people? Do you like working by yourself? Do you like working on teams? Do you like analyzing problems? Do you like Excel? Are you good at financial data? Are you good at storytelling? Like, what and where are those intersections? And then once you've figured that out, then I think what you need to do is talk to as many people as possible. You're not asking them for jobs, you're doing informational interviews, you're doing coffee chats. If you go on LinkedIn, you can click on Rutgers University, the school, or you can click on Rutgers Business School, the school. And in there, you can click on this tab alumni. And from there, you can list marketing. You can list equity sales. You could list supply chain analyst. And it'll pop up all these different alumni from Rutgers and Rutgers Business School that do these jobs. And then what you do is you connect with them on LinkedIn. And You have to send a personalized message. Hey, I'm so-and-so. I'm a junior at Rutgers, majoring in blah. I saw your background. It looks really interesting. I'd love to hear about your career journey. Now, people love to talk about themselves. And they love when people compliment them. Not everybody's going to respond, but you would be surprised, pleasantly surprised by how many actually do. And just ask them what they do and how they got there
0: right of course thank you for that advice that was very like structured and like you know very useful for girls who might be um wanting to know how to like get started because i think getting started is like the hardest thing with and i really like the venn diagram i'll be using that right after this call (laughs) um, listing all my traits like what i want to do so thank you for that and um i guess another question would be um it's not untrue that there is a strong male presence in like the fi- uh, business world and especially like the finance industry, like investment banking, like equity research, sales and trading, what, uh, what have you. So what do you, how do you think like a woman can better position herself, like both mentally? Well, I guess mentally, um, and even like maybe, uh, what's it called like technically.
1: Sure. So, you know, it's interesting as a finance professor, I, I talk with, um, a lot of recruiters, right? Because they want, they want you all, they want our students. Um, and what they tell me from all of our students is the technical skills are great. What we need to work on is the storytelling. Why do we want this job? Why do we want to be at the firm? Not just because we want to make a lot of money because that's not a good answer, right? Um, when I started out my career in investment banking, I was one of two women in a class of 20, 10%. Me, I had brown hair, my roommate had blonde hair. The hardest part about my job was not doing the financial models. It was knowing and remembering the names of all the other guys in my analyst class because they all look the same. And we look different because we had different hair colors. Yeah. Um so that was that was the hardest part. You know, I go back to thinking, hey, I, you know, I belong here and I deserve to be here. And, that, and that's probably the biggest thing. From a technical skill standpoint, you're gonna have the same technical skills that the guys are, right? You're going through the same classes. There's an interesting study that was done years ago that said, Women only apply to jobs if they meet 100% of the criteria and men apply when they're like, I got 60% of this. And so my advice to to women, especially as you're entering these fields, is you don't have to meet every single criteria that they're asking because the guys are not meeting every single criteria that they're asking and they're still going for it. So it doesn't have to be 100%. Doesn't even have to be an A on the criteria that you meet. Right? Sell your story. Figure out how you can leverage, right? We talk about leverage and finance, get the most out of what you currently have. Leverage your experiences, your leadership experiences um, to really craft the story and the reason of why you want to be there. And, you know, I think you still form those relationships um, within within the company, you know, within your analyst class. Find the folks who, maybe have had internships where they've done this before or have some experience and you want to find that mentor. Don't ask somebody, will you be my mentor? If that's a little, as my kids would say, cringy. But you want to find, find those people who will help develop you. And that's where you want to go when you start working. You want to go where folks are going to take an interest to develop you. And the best managers are the ones that want you to replace them. Because once you can replace them, they can move on and do something even more exciting for them, but they can't do that until they backfill. So a really good manager is one that wants you to succeed and doesn't feel threatened.
0: Of course, that's so powerful actually to think about it that way. Um, And I guess you were saying like, you know, like women apply to jobs that they feel 100% capable in. And sometimes we think that we need to be um, 100% right in order to even like speak. Um, And so are there any like, I don't know, little exercises or tips that you have, um, that maybe like we can implement on an everyday basis in order to, you know, because I think um, doing it every day will help us like in the long term. Instead of, I don't think it's something that we can like switch on or off like this, you know. So, is there any like advice that you have?
1: Yeah, so it's it's like practice, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So there are a couple things, and they actually. that that I've used to combat that imposter syndrome and about three quarters of women, I think suffer from imposter syndrome and the higher up you get, the irony is the more you experience it Um, where you've actually become more of an expert and should feel less imposter like, but a couple of these things and they all come from my sports background. Actually we had, this was back in the eighties and we had this thing called a Walkman, which was, you know, an early, early, early addition to, you know, your, your, your phone with music on it and listening to Spotify. And there was, uh, it was almost like meditation, mental health coach that we had to listen to. And it was this woman on this cassette. And at the end of our five hour practice, we'd lie down and we'd listen to these mantras and it was, you know, I am a good gymnast. I am a good gymnast. I am a good gymnast. And she was yelling it by the third time. And you're like, fine, 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 I'm good. And it was like, you know, I like gymnastics. I like this. I like, and, and so it was going off. And so I started doing that when I got to um, to banking. And, you know, my imposter syndrome started out even prior to that. So mm-hmm. I grew up in Arizona. We were on government assistance before I went to college. Um, college really was my ticket into not having to worry about the finances the way I did growing up as a kid. And I knew way too much at the age that I did. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I ended up going to to this school where all these kids from prep schools went to. And they came from very wealthy households. And I was really intimidated. And Mm -hmm. even in my classes, it took me until probably my junior year before I realized, you know what, I'm just as smart as these folks. And I'm going to raise my hand high and proud. And so it, but it was telling myself these mantras. And so when I went into the banking, I was like, I like investment banking. I like investment banking. And I said, I'm a good financial modeler. I'm a good and finally like I said it enough that I believed it. And the other thing that I believe is women a lot of times don't take up space. And it's a physical sign, like we make ourselves small, we cross our legs, we put our hands on our lap, where men like spread themselves out on the subway, and you know, we're really big. And so there's something called power posing. And, you know, you can make the Wonder Woman pose with your hands on your hips and pretend like there's that cape behind you. And if you do that, and just breathe naturally for a couple minutes, it somehow conditions your brain to think that you are bigger and stronger and more deserving and mentally there to execute whatever task it happens to be. And so, those are a couple techniques. I, the other one I mentioned was surround yourself with a network of really smart people. Mm-hmm. And if you don't know the answer to something, you say, hmm, that's a really good question. Let me think about it. And then I call it my friends. Mm-hmm. And then I come back and I have an answer because I've sure. thought about it. I might have had some other folks think about it with me. <laughs> and then I come back and, and we're able to do it. So, those are just a couple, three hacks right that I've used in my life
0: thank you and I think in um woman build we were talking about how women say sorry a lot like we were watching a Pantene commercial and it was like um it was for things that they didn't even do like they were like someone else like sat next to them on the subway and they were like oh sorry like so then it just made us realize how much we say sorry and how unnecessary it is but yeah sorry
1: and just don't oh, say yeah, just either. that one that's too. the other one yeah
0: all right Thank you so much, Professor, for being on this episode. Um, it was so amazing to hear about your experiences and all the advice you had for us, especially those three hacks at then. Those were really, I really like the affirmations. Definitely going to do that one. Um, um, and a big thank you to our listeners for tuning in. Join us uh, two Wednesdays from now for another episode of Wednesdays with Lib and have a great week.
1: Thanks, take care.
0: Thank you.